between Pesach and Shavuos, which is called the period of Sfirah Saomer, the counting of the Omer. So therefore, we are going to discuss a little bit of what happened and what that time is. A friend of mine was telling me, he was giving a class a while back, and the class was about, uh, you know, one of the classes that he was, uh, and after, before he finished a class, one of the people at the class came over to him and says, you know, your class last week, Saved me. So he says, what do you mean my class saved you? So he says, listen here, because of you, I still have a job. So he's trying, he says, I still don't understand what you're talking about. So he says, I'm a uh, very, uh, I'm a financial advisor, business management. And uh, last week, I come into the office and to welcome me into the office, there was this infuriating email from my boss, blaming me that on the last financial report that came out from the company, there were terrible mistakes, and should the shareholders got this type of uh, report, this would have been devastating news for the company. And he blamed me for the financial uh, mistake on the report that was there, because one of my jobs as the financial reporter is to review the reports, and I didn't catch this glaring mistake. And therefore, he was furious and livid, and you can imagine the language that was mentioned in that email. I look at the email, and I look at to myself, and I say, one second. I'm not the only one that reviewed this report. He also had to review the report before it went out. So why is it only my fault? But then I remembered what you told me about the class, about the concept of finding love for every single person, and showing and being there as the Torah tells us of not holding a grudge or being hatred. So I took two coffees, swallowed the insult, stood up to the, went to the office, and I had a candid conversation with my boss in a very respected way. And because of that, I'm still here today to tell the tale. And I wasn't fired, and we worked things out, and we set benchmarks and problems in between. So because of your class, my job was saved. Vira doesn't just mean to count, also means to shine, like the word sapir of a stone. And sapphire comes from the same thing, which means we should become bright. And during this time, we look to see how we can better ourselves in preparing ourselves for the giving of the Torah, which is going to be on the holiday of Shavuos. But even more so, there's something very unique about the counting of the Omer. The counting of the Omer is sort of an intermediate days between Pesach and Shavuos. And it's almost like a semi-holiday. To the extent that if we look in the Torah, there are two holidays that are of seven days. There's Sukkot and there's, Suk and there's Pesach. While Sukkot, right after the festival of seven days, becomes another festival on the eighth day, which is Shemini Atzeres. On Pesach, however, the seventh day is called Shvi Yishal Pesach, the seventh day of Pesach. It's not its own holiday. It's, in fact, the only time that we don't make a Shechiyana when we light Shabbos candles because it's still part of the first holiday. Why is it that the first holiday, Sukkot, there's an eighth day celebrating afterwards, but when it comes to Pesach, there isn't? In fact, the Talmud gives a way to remember all the differences between Sukkot and Pesach by using an abbreviation of Pezer Kashev, which means 
Number one, it was a time where the Kohanim used to make a special raffle who would bring the sacrifices for Shemini Atzeres. Number two, on Shemini Atzeres, we make a blessing Shechianu, while on Shvi Pesach we don't. Shemini Atzeres is its own holiday, while Shvi Pesach is just continuation from the first six days. It's a different sacrifice on the eighth day of Pesach, while on the seventh day of Pesach it still continues. It was a different song they sang, and it was a different prayer. And you can see Shemini Atzeres is a completely different holiday. While the seventh day of Pesach seemingly is just a continuation of the previous holiday. Why is it different? But you'll find something unique. In the Torah, what is it called the holiday of Shavuos? Atzeres. Same as the holiday of Shemini Atzeres. Nachmanides wants to learn from here that the whole time of the period of the counting of the Omer between the seventh day of Pesach and the holiday of Shavuos are technically intermediate days and they're technically holy days just as from the time in between Pesach, uh, the Sukkot and Shemini Atzeres. What does that mean? That every single day of the counting of the Omer is another day that we're counting in anticipation of the giving of the Torah. Just like a bride and groom, as they count down the days to their wedding in anticipation for their wedding, so to us, the Jewish people, we are counting down every single day in anticipation for the giving of the Torah. So every single day is infused with a mitzvah, and every single day is categorized by the mitzvah of the counting of the Omer. And like this, we are anticipating this special time of the counting of the Omer. So while the counting of the Omer is this such a unique time, and a great time where we are anticipating the giving of the Torah, and every single day has another mitzvah, at the same time, from the other hand, it also seemingly is a very sad time. And what's that very sad time? Is that at this time, there was a time during the time of Rabbi Akiva, who Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students, and those 24,000 students died within 33 days. You can imagine, if you do the math, that 700 funerals in one day. And if you look, think back that there a pandemic of what happened in Brazil and in India and in Italy or in places where the pandemic hit really hard of people dying on the streets, 700 people, imagine just in a close-knit area of students that are dying, 700 funerals in one day for 33 days is unimaginable. And because of that, ever since then, the days of the counting of the Omer were considered, those 33 days, as period of mourning that we don't take haircuts, we don't make weddings, we don't listen to live music, and many other customs that are done during these times because of the sad period, mourning period of Rabbi Akiva's students passed at that time. So let's look at what happened at the time, and let's understand, and we're going to discuss these, this period of Svira, what happened to the students of Rabbi Akiva, that they were, had such a terrible pandemic that killed many of them, and what we can do to be able to better ourselves because of it. So one of the reasons that the Talmud gives, that the cause of the death of the students of Rabbi Akiva, was because the students of Rabbi Akiva did not give respect to one another. And over here we're going to talk about what does this mean? What does it mean that Rabbi Akiva's students didn't respect one another? We can understand they weren't people like me and you. They were people of giants and great understanding and intellect. But what does it mean they didn't give respect to one another? But even more so, what does it mean to us? And how does that apply to us in our own life? If this is a story that we still observe today about the morning of these great scholars, there must be something that we, this relates to us as well. And in next week's Torah reading, and in fact, in Israel, interestingly enough, they're already reading this Torah reading. is Parshas Kedoshim in the book of Leviticus, where it talks about the different commandments that the Jewish people were obligated to observe. And many different commandments are mentioned there. 
And one of the commandments that are mentioned there, and in fact, maybe if you want to call it a central commandment, a cardinal law, which is brought in Jewish law, is the ahafta l'reicha kamaycha. Love your fellow as yourself. And there are very well-known questions that are asked about this commandment. Questions that are asked by psychologists through psychoanalysis, and questions that are asked from our commentators in Jewish law as well. Sigmund Freud, one of the well-known psychologists who decided that he's going to go into the depths of the soul to try to see what's within the and every individual, and he came to discover what may be the id of every individual. And Sigmund Freud decided that through a psychoanalysis, he had the pathways of the soul that he would be able to discover and see what may be troubling the individual. And in one of his questions he asked, was about this very famous verse. He had many different questions about the point of how is it possible to love someone like yourself? How is it possible that a person should express such love for somebody else like himself? There are many people in life that you would that you detest, that you don't want to love, that maybe you shouldn't love. How is it possible, A, for a person to take something which is self-described and express that on somebody else? In Hebrew... The word for love is ahava. Ahava is the numeric value of 13. Aleph is 1. Hey is 5. Bet is 2. What am I at? 5 plus 1 plus 2 is 8. Bet, another bet, is 2, is 10. And then you have the hey, I'm sorry, is 15. But you have, I'm sorry, what a 10? No, 13, I'm sorry. Two hey's is 10. Bet is two, Aleph is one, is 13, yes. Another word in Hebrew that has the same numeric value as 13 is Echad, one. Aleph is one, Ches is eight, Dalet is four, which brings you to the number 13. Interestingly enough that the word love and the word one in Hebrew have the same numeric value. What is that telling you? That in order to love, what does love mean? That you are taking two separate entities, two separate people, two separate things, bringing them together as one, that's where you have love. But how is that possible? How is it possible that two people, two separate entities, should be able to love one another like themselves? How is it possible that just because these are separate entities, how can they love each other? We are created with two egotistic, selfish beings, and you want them to start loving each other like each other? How is that possible? Ramosha Leib Abbasif, one of the very famous Hasidic masters, used to say, he says, I learned what it means love from watching two Gentiles in a bar. I was in a bar and I saw two Gentiles in the Kretschme. You know, they used to have in Russia the Kretschme, the inn. And I see two drunkards walk into the inn and they're both, one is drunk, more drunk than the next. And one says to the other, Ivan, do you love me? The other guy turns back to him and says, of course I love you. What do you mean? He says, Ivan, if you really love me, tell me where I'm hurting. Tell me what hurts me. Ramayusha Leib of Sasaf looked at these fellows, these drunks, and says, yes. True love means that you feel the other's pain. You know what's going in the other person. You know what's bothering the other in the person. That's what love is. You become one entity. Like a parent to a child. They feel the pain of their children even when their children don't even feel it. Even more so, Freud was pondering, how is it possible to love people who maybe are not deserving of love? What does that mean? You meet a person 
who all that person has is has some type of thing against you. There's a certain type of detesting that they have. They don't consider you as something. Or there are people that only look to hurt you. They look to, de to, de to defame you. They look to maybe to destroy you. How can you show love to such a person? How can you show any type of liking even to such a person? Forget about the word love. And therefore Freud felt this verse in the Torah, love your fellow as yourself, in his eyes, isn't impossible or faulty, whatever you want to look at it, in his egotistic way of looking at it. So let's look at the verse again. The verse, love your fellow as yourself, is a conclusion of many things that say before it. The verse begins by saying, don't hate your brother in your heart, rebuke your friend and do not have any sin against him. Do not take any revenge in any shape or form. Love your fellow as, love your friend as yourself. So what is the verse telling us? If we look in the actual context of the verse, it's talking about a person who may have wronged you. Therefore, what does the verse tell you? Don't hate him. Instead of hating him, tell him what you did wrong. And because of that, you will not come to take revenge. And by not taking revenge, then you will be able to love him. So it seems like a system of events. Interestingly enough, if you notice, the Torah changes the terminology from the beginning of the verse to the end of the verse. First it says, don't hate your brother. Then it says, rebuke your friend. And then when it says, love your fellow, it uses a terminology which is not usually found in the Torah, which means your close friend. But in fact, if you look in the word in Hebrew, is reish, Ayin chof. If you take just the first word, means ra, which means bad. Means love a person that even though they did bad to you, you have to learn how to love them. That means the Torah is addressing this question. You are concerned, well, this person did something wrong to me. Well, talk to them about it. Take care about it. That means the Torah is not saying all of a sudden to love your children. The Torah is saying even a person that, so to speak, did something wrong to you, you have to love them. And over here, the question is, okay, you want me to love them? Fine. You want me to show them some niceness and be polite? Also good. But over here, you're taking it as a little step too far, maybe the Torah is saying. I shall love them like myself. How can I love them like myself? This person wronged me. How can I love such a person in such a level of that I love myself? I love myself, I love my family, I love my children. But now the Torah is telling me to love somebody like I love myself. How is that possible? So the great scholars of the Torah already addressed this question before Freud came around. Hundreds of maybe thousands of years before he came. And one of the questions they asked even before this concept is, how is it possible that the Torah should command me to love? Can I tell you like potato chips? Can I tell you you have to like ice cream and only vanilla, not chocolate? Either I like it or I don't like it. You can't force a person, you can't make a commandment to love. How does the Torah come along and say, love the other person? What, what do you mean? We'll love that other person. Well, how can I all of a sudden start loving that person? If it's a feeling in a person's heart, how is it possible that we can command an individual? How can the Torah command an individual to love? Number two, the Torah uses a terminology, lirei acha. To your friend. Now it doesn't say only the righteous you should love. It doesn't say only a good person you should love. 
It doesn't make a difference if the person's righteous, evil, plain, in between, what color, what shape. you got to love that person. How is it possible that a person should be able to love somebody, like we mentioned before, who may have done something wrong? Not only may he do something wrong, but looks to do wrong, and continues to do wrong. And number three, even more so, how can it be like yourself? How can you love a person to the extent that it should be like yourself? Love that person like yourself, which seemingly seems like the impossible. They used to say, you know, talk about loving a person like yourself. Do I think I said the story once before? There were two friends. There was this guy and his friend. He used to always go every Thursday night. They would meet each other in the bar for a drink. And unfortunately, time came. His friend passed away, but he still kept up the custom. And he would go every Thursday night and have two drinks: one for him and one for his friend. He did this for ten years. Year number eleven comes. He goes to the bartender. He says, "Today, I only want one drink." The bartender asked him, what happened today? Why only one drink? So he says, I went to the doctor and the doctor told me I have to slow down on my drinking. So therefore, I'm only drinking for my friend. I'm not taking a drink for me today. That's called loving your fellow like yourself. Drank for his friend, maybe. But what do we see from here? What does this mean, loving a person like yourself? Nachmanides asks this question. How is it possible for the Torah to tell a person to love a person like themselves? It seems outlandish. How is it possible that a person can love somebody else like he loves himself? And he takes it even a step further. According to Jewish law, if you are in the desert and you have only one cup of water, it's either you or your friend. Who has to drink that cup of water? Yourself. You do not have to put your life in danger because of somebody else. That means the Torah even tells us that if, it, if for example, if you see somebody drowning... And that you're, and you can save that person, then you have an obligation to jump in and save that person. You see somebody injured, you have to jump, help that person if you can. But what happens if your life's gonna be in danger if you're gonna try to help them? Let's take for example, you see somebody stuck on the LIE. If you're gonna pull over on the side of the LIE in a place where it's not safe, you're putting your own life in danger. You have no obligation to stop and help that person. But if, if your life is not in danger and you can help that person, you have to stop and help them. Even according to Jewish law, on Shabbos, where we're told that, let's say, if you see a person drowning, the laws of Shabbos are subsided, so you can jump in and save that person. But if your life might be in danger, there's no obligation for you to jump in and save him. We find this even concerning Moses. A proof is even brought for Moses. That when Moses was told to go down to Egypt... What, is we, what does the Torah say? Because those that are looking to kill you are no longer there. Or no longer looking to kill you. That means if those people were looking to kill you, would still be there? You wouldn't have to go down. And we're talking about taking the Jewish people out of Egypt. But if his life would be in danger, he wouldn't have to. On the flip side of that, interesting thing we find that what does it mean self-sacrifice? The Siras Nefesh, the previous Rebbe, and many great people have put their lives in danger to save other people's lives. And that becomes a whole different talk on its own on what it means in the level of Mesir Nefesh, where we go above and beyond rationale. That means within the rationale of Torah, I'm not obligated. But then there's even working beyond the rationale of Torah, which sometimes that's needed as well. Like when a person goes to war, a soldier that's going to war is putting his life in danger to save other people. Because at times we need to be able to work beyond rationale. But talking about in a regular system of events, 
Menachemonides asks, how can the Torah demand that we should love our fellow like ourselves? If seemingly even Torah demands that a person shouldn't put their life in danger for somebody else. And therefore we know that for many generations, had it different commentators explain this verse, were with different types of methods of explaining it. Talking about that it's not telling you that you have to create an emotion for love. But on the contrary, one of the great Bali Atosvas, which is the commentators on the Talmud, say that how is it possible that a person should love a person just like himself? And therefore it means that you should value the other person's property like your own value. Don't destroy their money. If you see something lost of theirs, you should return it. Not necessarily that it has to mean that you love that person actually as yourself, but you should value that person's property as your own property. Value that person as your own. Another one, in fact, one of the first famous people to translate it in a different way was Hillel. What did Hillel say? Hillel translated it to the negative, so to speak. What is hateful to you, don't do unto others. That means Hillel looked at it saying, don't get yourself, don't make your own somebody else's room dirty if you don't want your room to be dirty. Don't make somebody else's problems your problems. If you don't want that to happen to you, don't do it to others. That's another way of looking at it like yourself. Nachmanides looks at it from another angle and says, what does it mean to love? He says, you will learn from God, just like God went and visited people who are sick and comforted those who, pay law, uh, those who were mourning and so on, So, uh, making sure that the bride and groom have what they need for their wedding. So to a person, what does it mean to love? To, to be there for a person in their life, in their life cycle events, whether it's when they lost somebody or whether they're not feeling well or whether they need something, helping them, helping a poor person or whatever it may be, not even a poor person or any person, being, them, being there for them in their emotional time of need, that's called being like them. Nachmanides takes it even continues in a step further. And he gives an example of what does it mean loving a fellow like yourself. So love on its own, Nachmanides explains, is being there for the person emotionally. What does it mean to love the person like yourself? He gives an example of a very famous story in the Bible, in Tanakh, in the Prophets, with the story of David and Jonathan, where David and Jonathan were best of friends, Jonathan being the king of Shoal. And David being the one that was going to replace King Shaul. And Jonathan knew that King David was going to be the hero of the throne, even though he should have been because he's the son of Shaul. Still in all, he went and saved David's life and King Shaul was angry at him. And he was there for him at all times. He says that is true love that the ethics of our fathers calls the ultimate type of love. Because even though King David had something up on Jonathan, Jonathan didn't hate him because of it. On the contrary, he still loved him because of it. That means many times one of the reasons why we are upset or why we dislike somebody else is because we feel they have something up on us. They have something more than us. We deserve better and they have it. In a life that we look in a life full of competitiveness, we look at the Joneses, what they have, what kind of house, what kind of car, what kind of clothing this person's wearing and everything that's going on, we sometimes feel that we are disadvantaged. And therefore we feel some type of, not name if you want to call it hatred, or some type of disliking towards yeah. the other, jealousy, but that causes a disliking towards the other person. And over here we see a case where King David and Jonathan, where even though Jonathan was seemingly should have been the one to adhere to the throne, King David was going to be the one to replace him. And he had no ill feelings against him. And he actually loved him to the extent as well. So what we see over here, seemingly, 
what the law of the commandment of the Ahafta Larecha Kamaycha has translated in previous generations, love your fellow as yourself, is more about making ourselves better people in being there for the other person, making refining or fine-tuning our emotions that they shouldn't be full of hatred, they should not be full of resentment, they should be one of liking towards another individual. But not necessarily, as we can see, do all of them talk about, or do any of them mention, that it should be on equal par. That kamoicha means exactly loving the person the same. The problem with all these interpretations is one thing. Number one, how do I reach that level that I shouldn't be jealous of somebody else? Even that level seems a little aloof for the average folk. Number two, at the end of the day, that's not what the Torah says. The Torah uses the terminology, love your fellow as yourself. How does that translate with the actual trends of meaning of what the Torah tells us? And even more so, as the Torah uses it as the antidote of do not hate your fellow in your heart, which means then, love your fellow as yourself. How did the two jive? And from here, we come to the mystical, esoteric teachings of the Torah, which help us understand and appreciate what these words mean. And this is actually explained in the magnum opus of the first Chabad Rebbe, the Tanya, where he uses in chapter 32, the, which the word 32 in Hebrew is Lamed Beit, which means Lev, the heart of the Tanya, which discusses this concept of love for a fellow Jew. The Alter Rebbe begins it, and the Tzemach Tzedek, his grandchild, takes it also to a further level to help us better understand it. And the Alter Rebbe says as follows. In other words, on the natural way of things, maybe Freud was right. There's nothing really that may connect us. We look like two individuals. There's nothing that me and you maybe have in common. And maybe we may be two different particles, two different individuals. And from that reality, there's nothing in life that I can make you love another person. The problem is that he made a mistake. We may be separate individuals, but only in body. In soul, we are all one entity. We are all one entity created by God. One soul, which is not dividable. It is one entity, one complete being. Imagine this. Imagine there are people that walk into an elevator. The greatest scholar and the smallest child, the most observant of the most secular. And they get stuck in the elevator. Does it make a difference who they are? What intellectual level they're on? What kind of, uh, what they learned? What their degree is? How much money they made? They're all in the same elevator. They're all stuck the same way. Doesn't make a difference. Why? Because they're all one person. What their wallet says, what their bank account may be, and what their wisdom may be, what degrees they may have in the wall, really doesn't matter. It really doesn't make a difference. All those differences fall aside. They're both in panic. They're both trapped. Really doesn't matter. That's the exact same soul that we have to have to one another in the positive way. That we have for one another. There's an amazing story that uh, Rabbi Shlomo Kunin, who's now the Chabad Shliach in California, tells when he was about 18 years old. He was a student in the in yeshiva, Tom Chetmim, in Chabad yeshiva. His family lived in the Bronx, and it was right before Pesach. 
And as was the custom, the Rebbe would give out matzah to everybody on the eve of Pesach. So he didn't want to go home until he would get that piece of matzah to be able to go home and bring it to his family to the Seder. So he had to take the train from Brooklyn to the Bronx to get to home. As he goes by the Rebbe to get a piece of matzah, the Rebbe asks him, can I ask you a favor? So he said, yeah, sure, you the Rebbe do a favor. He says, here's another piece of matzah. Can you bring this to this address in the Bronx? He says, go into the secretary. They'll tell you the address. Bring it to this family in the Bronx. He's going home to the Bronx anyway. Makes sense. He'll go. What kind of greater pleasure can he do than doing this favor? He goes into the secretary of the Rebbe. They give him the address. And he looks that the address is on the other side of town. His family lived next to Yankee Stadium. You guys know the Bronx. So his family lived next to Yankee Stadium. This, this uh, address is next to Bronx Zoo. To be able to get from one place to the next, it's on the, on the opposite side. So he called up his mother and he told his mother, I'm going to be a little late for the Seder. Start the Seder without me. Because he's going to have to walk back from that area because he's not going to make it back in time to be able to take the train. And going through that neighborhood, let's just say, wasn't the brightest neighborhood to walk through at night. But he's going on an errand to be able to bring the matzah to this family. He takes the train. He comes down into this development. It was like a whole uh, apartments over there that were there. And he notices that these were apartments that, that were for disabled people, especially for the blind. It was owned by the impaired, you know, by the people for the blind. He finally finds the apartment building. And as he finds the apartment building, he goes up, he looks at an apartment number, and he already smells from the outside of the door that the, the, the food that's cooking, put it this way, didn't smell like brisket for Pesach. He they answer the door, and he sees on the table there's bread, and there's all the other chametz you can, it was not a home that was preparing for Pesach, to put it mildly. And as he sees there, the father comes and he says, I came here to bring some matzah for Passover. So the husband of the home calls his wife, his wife was then pregnant, and two little girls who were blind. They clear off the table, they put out some water, that was the water instead of wine, and he sits down with them and he starts telling them about Pesach, and he brings them the matzah that the Rebbe brought them. They eat the matzah. And so on. And he does the, what the Rebbe asked. But before he goes, his curiosity was poking at him a little too much. And he says, before I go, I know it's late. But can you just tell me why the Rebbe sent me to this address? How do you even know the Rebbe? So he says, I'll tell you. He says, I work in a slaughterhouse. I skin the animals in the slaughterhouse. And in the slaughterhouse... I have a friend there who is a Chabad Chassid. He is the Mashkiach. He is the supervisor of the slaughterhouse. And one day I was talking to him about my plight. That we have two little girls that are blind. My wife is pregnant. And the doctors are saying that there's a 70% chance or an 80% chance that the child might be blind as well. And therefore the doctors are recommending an abortion. Because, and I'm thinking about it because how can I go with another? I know what it is to bring up two blind children. And why should I bring another child with a deficiency into this world? So the Chabad Chassid told him, says, before you do anything, write a letter to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He says, I'm a Jewish person. My wife is Jewish. And so we have respect for rabbis. So I decided, what can I lose? I'll write a letter to the Rebbe. He writes a letter to the Rebbe and the Rebbe responded to him that he should not, God, never go ahead with the abortion. And he will have nachas 
from these children, from the children who right now cannot see, and that the child that will be born will be a healthy child and will see much nachas from her. This is what the Rebbe responded. The Rebbe didn't forget about this person that sent the letter. And he told the student to go Pesach and bring the matzah. Long story short, at the end of the day, this matzah had a very big impact. And that newborn daughter that was born was born healthy and well. And today she's a religious woman living with a happy family someplace happy. And they live happily ever after, as they say. What do we see from here? What do we see? Something unique, something special. Is the love for a person that he never saw, he never met, person that was sitting that knew nothing about Judaism. It was loving that person because of their soul, just as because of who they are. You know, many people say, well, jealous, the other guy is doing better than me. It's automatically that I should be jealous. They say a story about the Evan Ezra. Evan Ezra, the commentary that you find in the Torah. One of the great first scholars, great commentators on the Torah. He was a poor person. He wrote about himself once. He says he should be, if he would sell shrouds, nobody would die. That's, a, that's, a, that's what kind of person he had. No money, didn't have a penny to his name. One of his friends felt very bad for him. But he wouldn't take money from people. He wanted to sell stuff. He wanted to make his own living. So the guy said, thought of a great idea. He took a bunch of bills, you know, the money. He put it in front of the way where the Ebenezer used to walk to synagogue. If we'll see money on the floor. The Jewish law is that if you see money on the floor, it's no one. You're allowed to pick it up. It's called Hefker, and you can keep it. He says the Ebenezer will see the money on the floor. He'll pick it up, and only this will have something with the live on. He's waiting outside the Ebenezer's house to see what's going to happen. The Ebenezer comes out of his house. He walks out of his house. His eyes are closed, steps right over the money, and doesn't pick it up. He walks over to the Ebenezer and afterwards, and he says, my dear rabbi, I tried helping you. I put the money out on the floor that you should be able to take it. Why did you close your eyes and not take it? So he says, listen here. Every day I take this walk to Shul. So I know the way already. And I decided from now on, that day I decided I'm going to close my eyes. I don't want to be distracted by what's around me. So I never sold the money on the floor. He says, it must be that that, that day that you decided to put the money and I decided to close my eyes, it was a sign from heaven that the money does not for me. God gives every person what they deserve. There's nothing for you to be jealous about. But what do we come from here to see? Is the very fact that the concept is that we see that, the, that God is, gives us what we need. Every single person has what he needs. And every single person has what he's supposed to have. But even more so. What the Rebbe was teaching this boy is that we're one entity. Every single soul of the human being is one thing. Take, for example, anytime something breaks, you have a table that breaks, or you take anything that breaks, and you glue it back together, does it become one piece? No, it's still two separate entities that are glued as one. A table is made up of a bunch of different particles that's made as one. Every single item in this world that you look that's made as one, as strong as the glue is, it's still two separate entities that are gluing it together. What's the only thing in this world What's the only thing that when they mix together, they retain their color, but they become one? Fire. You take two fires, put them together. You don't see two separate fires. You may see a yellow fire, a red fire, a red flame. You see different colors in the flame, but it becomes one flame. 
Why is fire the only thing that becomes one entity? Because there is no material aspect to it. All it is, is oxygen. There's nothing material. There's no physical item of it. It consumes. It destroys things. Because that's exactly what the soul of the Jewish person is. The soul of the Jewish person is compared to a fire. And those two fires are one entity that can't be separable. And when they come together, it looks like one entity because it was always one entity. It's one thing. And therefore the Altareb explains in Tanya and elaborates in chapter 32. Telling us that we are technically one body. There's a head, there's a shoulder, there's a finger, there's a toe. There's every single part of the body. And every single Jew represents another part of the body, but we're technically one body. So therefore, if the finger is bothering you, are you going to cut off your finger? Hating your finger is akin to hating another Jew. The same idea, the same way hating another person is like hating another, is like hating another part of your body. Because we're all one entity. We're all one soul. We're all one unit. Yes, we have separate entities. We have separate bodies. But our soul is one. So to love your fellow as yourself is no longer any difficult. It's loving yourself. It's not as yourself. It's loving yourself. Because you are the same person. It so happens to be that God created us in many different bodies because there's many different missions and many different places to be and it can't stretch that far. So therefore, the finger's here, the thumb is here. And a person who's able to feel every single part of the body feels every single part of the soul. And that's why the Rebbe was able to feel every single you person's body because he felt every person's soul. They say a story about there was once these two Hasidim in Neville. Neville was a very hometown to a lot of Hasidic brotherhood. And there was two Hasidim every single morning they would study together before prayer. Study, learn together, and they would get along. They looked like brothers. Then these two same Hasidim would go to the marketplace, and they were businessmen, peddlers, and they were selling the same merchandise. Seemingly competitors. That guy would say $10, I would say $5. And competing with each other to be able to get the business. A guy is watching this. He says, I don't understand. These guys were just learning together. They look like best friends. Now they're competing and like fighting with one another. Ah, these chsidim, they're chsidim. But until it comes to the buck, right? Everything stops at the buck. But then he goes back into the shul at night. And he sees the two chsidim are back learning together like best of friends. Can't figure it out. So he goes over to them and he says, I don't understand. You guys were just fighting with one another in the market. And now you're back learning. How does that work out? Are you friends? Do you get along with the donkey? Like he's all mixed up. He says, we're best buddies. In the market, we weren't fighting. Our rubles were fighting. What? Our rubles. The money was the fighting. Money the people, fighting. but we are best of friends. It was just a matter of getting, a, that's the way business is done. This is what it means, Vayahafta. That you love your fellows yourself, you don't allow the things to get in between the two of you. And helping a person reach that level. And most Reason, what does it mean? The third Chabad Rebbe takes it to the next step and says, How do I make it to be like myself? And said to take it as follows because every single person, be it as it may, whoever it is, was blessed with a certain dose of narcissism. We all like ourselves, we all justify what we did, we all come to certain excuses and say, Why would I did was correct, but if somebody else would do the exact same thing? Oh. All hell breaks loose. Why is that? Because we all have a certain self 
sense of self-esteem, self-confidence, or call it as it is, narcissism. That's what it is. Every single person has it. And therefore, if you come home from work tired and hungry, you're going to blame the person. How come it's not ready? I, why didn't you eat at work? Oh, I was so busy. I didn't have time to do it. Maybe that person was busy too. No, because <laughs> they have to have it ready for me. So what is the Torah telling us? The Torah tells us very clearly. This is exactly what it means to love your fellow as yourself. The same excuse and justification you would make for yourself and say, oh, I was busy at work. Make that same excuse for somebody else. The same excuse that you would make for somebody else, that, for you, that you would make for yourself of why you had this downfall, make for that person. Because you know what the problem is? Most people are judged, not when they're on their they're high, but when they're on their low. And every person, when they're, on, when they're on their low, has 107 excuses of why they did that. Why they fell through. Why they weren't able to do it. Whatever excuse you're going to make for yourself, the Torah tells us. Love your fellow as yourself when it's difficult. That means when it's bad for him. Think, what excuse would I make for myself? As King Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, on all my sins, love covers over it. What does that mean? Every time I do something wrong, I have an excuse why I did it. I know why I did it. It was not my fault. It was somebody else's fault. That same exact excuse make for the other person as well. Look at the words of Hillel now. What did Hillel tell the convert that said he wants to convert while standing on one foot? He said, what is hateful to you, don't do to somebody else. What does it mean, what is hateful to you? That means what you hate. That means when you see somebody, what is hateful, when you see somebody judging you on your lowest level, that's the way also you should think about somebody else. That same excuse that you made for yourself, make for that other person as well. The Talmud has a fabulous story. And the Talmud says as follows, and this is a, bring an interesting example about this. He said, well, this is a great difficult level. But the Talmud says in the tractate of Shabbos, says an unbelievable story which seemingly seems super rational or beyond expectation of the normal human being. It says a story about a worker who was very poor. He needed to find a job. So he decided he's going to go hire himself out, left his family, left his home. He says, I'm going to go work for this guy, very wealthy individual. And he decided to go work for him for three years. Hopefully, after three years, he'll amass a certain amount of money, he'll be able to go home and bring it to his family. This wealthy individual gave him a bed to eat, gave him a place to a bed to sleep, a place to eat. And he made a deal with him. You work for me for three years. At the end of the three years, that's when I pay you. Because anyways, he's not going home until the end of three years. At the end of three years, I'll pay him. He worked, did his hours, great worker, did everything. Three years pass. He wants to go home to his family. He wants to bring something home for them. They missed him for three years. Comes to his boss. His boss tells him, sorry, I don't got the money. He says, I worked for you for three years. I promised my family, my, you, my family didn't see me for Shabbos, for Yomda, for Pesach, for Shavuos, for Sukkot. They were all alone. And now, what's going to be? I'm going to come home empty-handed? What am I going to do? How am I going to be able to bring some home to my family? Paul said, sorry, I got nothing for you. He says, you don't have anything. You have here, you're a wealthy man. You're living on an estate, a mansion with property, with all these things. 
you don't have anything to give me to take home. At least they have money. Give me something valuable that I can bring home and exchange. Sell them. I get money. Something. He says, sorry, I don't have anything. The worker turns around, empty-handed, goes home. Comes home for the holidays, empty-handed. Doesn't know what to do, but this is what he has. After the holiday, the wealthy man shows up at the worker's house with three wagons laden with goods and wealth and unbelievable stuff. Paid him for the entire three years and plus. The worker asked him, I don't understand. What happened all of a sudden? So the boss turns to the worker and he says, let me ask you a question. When I told you that I can't pay you, and you're looking, I'm living in a mansion, this beautiful home. What did you? What was going through your mind? What are you saying? This guy's had one piece of work and then that. What was really going through your mind? And the worker told him, I said, you know, I thought that maybe you dedicated everything you have. You gave it all to the holy temple. So it was considered koidesh, it was considered holy. And therefore, you had nothing to give me. Therefore, it really wasn't yours. That even though you were living on it, but it really wasn't yours to give me. And the worker tells him, he says, the wealthy guy comes over to him, gives him a hug and a kiss and says, let me tell you, I swear to you, that was the case. He says, what happened? He says, let me tell you what happened. He said, I get angry at my son for what he wronged me. And I promised I'm not giving my son a penny for my inheritance. So what did I do? I gave it all to the Holy Temple. But what happened? I saw the way you judged me favorably. I saw the way you were the one that judged me so favorably. And he said, probably I did it. I decided to also think back on how I judged him. And he says, the same way I, you judge me favorably, so too God will judge you favorably. And this is where you got. And therefore, I brought you all this stuff. Who was this worker? Who is this worker? The Talmud doesn't say a name. But in the commentaries, it's brought down that this worker was Rabbi Akiva. Ooh. Rabbi Akiva, before he became Rabbi Akiva, while he was still a shepherd, until he was 40 years, he didn't know Aleph. While he was still a simple person, this is who he was. Rabbi Akiva was a person who said, love your fellow as yourself. This is the entire Torah. So one can say, ah, oh, this is for great people, Rabbi Akiva. But the Talmud does not mention his name because the Talmud wants to tell us that every single one of us, you don't need to be as great as Rabbi Akiva to judge somebody favorably. You don't need to be as great as Rabbi Akiva to be able to see the good in another person. You don't need to be the greatest Rabbi Akiva to be able to dis to get rid of conflict, to judge a person looking from the right eye and giving the person the benefit of the doubt, not only the benefit of the doubt, but creating the excuse that you would make for yourself for that person. Now in this period of the counting of the Omer, reflecting on what Rabbi Akiva taught his students, the mistake that his students make, it is a time for us to reflect, to strengthen ourselves and being sure that we also are able to see the best in every single person, create the excuses that we can make for ourselves, for other people, and judge every person favorably.